Jesus didn't survive death. He conquered death. He didn't come limping out of that grave. He came victorious out of that grave. They didn't roll the stone back so Jesus could get out. They rolled the stone back so we could get in and see that Jesus wasn't there. First Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But come on, church, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Come on, who's happy to be in the house of the Lord today? We're launching a brand new series today called Death, Where Is Your Sting? We're going to take seven weeks and just rub the devil's face in the fact that he couldn't keep Jesus dead. Amen? He could get him to that tomb, but he couldn't keep him in that tomb, right? Jesus didn't survive death. He conquered death. He didn't come limping out of that grave. He came victorious out of that grave. They didn't roll the stone back so Jesus could get out. They rolled the stone back so we could get in and see that Jesus wasn't there, right? And so over these next few weeks, as we journey through this, uh, these, these portions of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are basically tracing Jesus' steps leading up to the crucifixion in preparation for our hearts to be ready for the resurrection. And here's the cool thing. Easter's coming up seven weeks away, and that's one day a year that the rest of the world celebrates this holiday of Easter. But we know for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that every day is a reason to celebrate. Amen? Because Jesus isn't just alive once a year on Easter Sunday, but we always have a reason to celebrate. And so over these next few weeks, we're preparing our hearts. Here's the challenge, though. Anytime that we, uh, you know, here's, here's part of the problem that we face with a holiday like Easter. The more we hear it, the more we're around it, the more accustomed we can become to it. And when we sing songs about the resurrection and, and, and the crucifixion, those are good things. But the more we hear it, the more the awe can wear off. And so I think it's so important that we take some extra time and just follow Jesus through these final hours leading up to the cross. That's what we're going to do. Um, and and, and here's, the, here's the amazing thing that we're going to have to understand. Over these seven weeks, we're going to hear all about treachery and betrayal and death and, and the pain that comes with it. But death, listen, because of the empty tomb, death, although it's painful, is no longer final. And this is what we celebrate in this, in this new series today, starting today. If you brought a Bible, we're going to start today in John chapter 13. So, let me give you kind of a, a map of where we're going in this series. Um, we're going to be primarily in the Gospels and the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, you can follow along in a paper Bible or on your phone or iPad if you use the, the Bible.com version app. Um, follow along with us. But 
John chapter 13 is where we're going to start today. We're actually going to probably often refer back to the book of John, although bouncing in and out of the other gospels as well, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all give different takes on the story. It's not that they contradict, it's that they saw it from a different angle. Think about it this way, the gospels are like different cameras portraying the, whole, the, the same story. If you go to a movie... You may not think about it as you're watching the movie, but you're seeing multiple different camera shots and different angles that have all been edited together to, to provide a context of the whole story. And, and so the same idea here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read through Matthew and then you get to Mark, you might get to Mark and say, like, I already read, I thought I already read this story. You did, but through somebody else's eyes. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell this story, and, and they give so much detail about the final days, the final hours leading up to Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion and the resurrection. And today I've had you turn to John, because John, of all four of the authors, puts the highest emphasis on these final days. In fact, if you just break it down by how many chapters John has devoted just to the final few hours of Jesus' life, you'll find that about 38% of the book of John is dedicated to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. This is obviously a big emphasis for him. So as we journey with Jesus and the disciples through these uh, treacherous final hours. We're going to learn all about our human nature, all about God's nature and his love for us, his willing to sacrifice no matter what the cost. And I, I believe it will do so much in preparing our hearts for what God wants to speak to us come Easter time and, and Good Friday and Palm Sunday and all those days that we can get too accustomed to. I hope we were able to see it in a whole new way. Now, we're going to start our journey in this series in what is commonly referred to as the Last Supper. Um, if you don't know the story, you probably at least know the painting of the Last Supper, right? So the painting, of course, is world famous and is, uh, is the, the 15th century mural that was um, in the church in Milan, Italy. We'll put a, a picture up here on the screen here in a moment of the Last Supper. And, and of course, Leonardo da Vinci is the painter, not Leonardo, not Leonardo DiCaprio. That's a different Leo, okay? But this da Vinci painted this, this mural on the wall in the church in Milan, Italy, and although it's one of the most recognized paintings in all of history, below probably the Mona Lisa and maybe Starry Night, um, the, the Last Supper is, is very recognizable, but it's historically problematic. Um, I, I actually read a, a book about this this week, and um, one of the authors was talking about, he, he said this statement in the book. He said something like, the Last Supper uh, stands as one of the most magnificent works of art in history. But then he said it is, quote, dreadful theology. So if you look at it, let me just kind of walk you through, and we're going to actually do our best. I'm going to do my best to kind of guide you into a Jewish feast today to help you see this, I hope, in a, in a whole new way. But if you just look at this picture, you'll start to understand that it's actually very different than what Jesus and the disciples would have actually taken, taken part in. Um, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, first of all, Jesus and the disciples would not have been seated in chairs at an elevated table with a nice white tablecloth. It was a little bit different in Jesus' day. They would recline 
their left hand on a pillow, their feet away from the table, and they would eat with their right hand. Most of the disciples had probably never even seen a chair, much less ever sat on one. So that's already way off. Also, if you notice under the table, you can tell they all still have their sandals on. That wouldn't have happened in Jesus's day. When you walked into a feast, one of the first things that would typically happen was you would take off your sandals and someone would wash your feet in preparation for this feast. So we know that's off. Also, what they're eating, if you look at, if you look closely in the painting, you'll, uh, you'll see, but Jesus and the disciples would have eaten lamb and unleavened bread, not uh, fish and Italian dinner rolls, okay? Like, this isn't, this isn't the Olive Garden, Da Vinci, all right? Like, you're a little bit off here. Just because you like Italian dinner rolls doesn't mean that that's what Jesus was munching on at the Last Supper. So there's all kinds of problems with the painting, even though it's beautiful and historic. But that's really beside the point, because we're not concerned today so much about what's on the table, but more so about who and what is around the table. We're going to talk today about the action that's taking place all around the table. The table that they would have sat at, I'll walk you through, was more of a U-shaped table. And we're going to talk about some of the people that were stationed around it and their placement and how it has meaning for us. I want to call this message, if you want to take, this, take some notes, I would encourage you to do so. Here's the title of the message today, A Stabbing at Supper. And I'm not talking about the stabbing pains of hunger. I'm talking about a backstabbing that took place at the Last Supper. And what I hope to draw your attention to today in, in, in hopefully a way that you've never seen it is that Jesus knew enough to know that his murderer was at the table in the room. And yet Jesus, we know, is a friend of the worst of the worst sinners. And I hope today to encourage you with the thought that if he was the friend of the man who would have him killed, he would happily be your friend as well. Let's read in John 13, starting in verse 1. We'll end up reading most of the chapter today, but we're going to kind of take it in pieces. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You may want to underline that. I want you to know that no matter where you find yourself in life, Jesus loves you to the end, to your last breath. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, "What what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now watch this. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
He's like, well, if that's the case, then I need a whole bath by you, right? Like your, your little basin is too small. I can't fit inside of it, all right? All of me needs to be washed. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but watch this, not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus, we come before you right now and we're so thankful that even though you know our hidden sin and the darkness in our hearts, you invite us in. And so, Lord, we pray just over this this time that we have together that you would be honored in this place. Lord, we live in a world that is filled with darkness and sin and death. This week has been a a, a very tragic reminder of that for us. Lord, we pray today especially for the the community in Florida that is hurting so deeply um, in in the light of these school shootings that have taken place. And God, we ask for justice, but we also ask for your grace. Lord, we ask for wisdom for our president and for our leaders. We pray, God, that you would put God-honoring people into places of authority to steer our nation back to where it needs to be. Lord, we pray that you would revive our hearts and, and bring our nation back to you. But God, we believe that as we pray for revival, it has to start in us. And so, Lord, I, I ask that today we would see ourselves in a whole new light as we open your word. God, would you speak to us? And if there are people, I believe there are people in our venues today and joining us online that are are not where they need to be with you. And God, I pray that you would rescue them today from their sin as they turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a few things for you to write down today. Uh, Three, and then as the Lord speaks to you, of course, take some notes. But let's start here with number one. Write this down. Jesus always saves a seat for Judas. Did you write that down? Jesus always saves a seat for Judas. So what's interesting about this uh, this scene here is that there's a murder that's going to take place within the next few hours. But this is not a, a murder mystery. Like, I don't know if you've been to a murder mystery dinner before. That's not what this is. They're not trying to figure out, Jesus specifically is not trying to figure out who who's going to do the work. He already knows. Um, if you've ever been to a murder mystery, you know what that's like. I, I, was, uh, I was a part of a murder mystery dinner about a year ago. Um, the pastors and wives, we got together and we, we, went to, we went to this. And I was assigned the part of um, a traveling entertainer named Bronco Bill. And I want to state for the record, I was not the murderer, all right? Um, also, I was uh, my wife, Jen, she was uh, a notorious outlaw named Bella Starry. And if you know my wife, you know she's an outlaw. Um, and, and so she played that part. And, and I do, so I just want to set the record straight that neither of us were the murderers, but Pastor Devon's wife, Hannah, was the murderer. So if you would pray for them. If you, would, if you would pray for them. Did somebody say not surprised? I, I, we'll, we'll pray for you, whoever said that. <laughs> Um, so the, the murder mystery, the idea here is that we don't know who's going to perform the act, but Jesus already knew. And and we know that from a few different places. It says in Matthew, uh, it, it, it tells us the gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus sat down with all 12, which is a pretty big deal. He knew 
It tells us in the book of, of Mark, pretty similar, Luke, the, the, the writer um, Luke, he tells us that Jesus stated, the hand of him who will betray me is at the table with me. Think about that for a moment. And we just read in John 13, verse 11, where Jesus said, or, or, or the author John writes, he knew who was to betray him. Let that soak in for a moment. Jesus knew who would betray him. Why should we let that soak in? Well, think about it. If you knew what Jesus knew, Judas wouldn't be in the room that night. Can we be honest? If you knew what Jesus knew, we would not have shown the same hospitality to Judas that Jesus showed that night. So this is an interesting setting here, and I, I think we, we, we can miss out on a lot because our American mindsets, to our, our American culture works so differently than how they would have had a Jewish feast. So let me do my best. Just go with me for a moment, if we can, back to Jerusalem, a um, couple thousand years. And I, I want to just try, if I can, real quickly to take you on a tour of this upper room that they were in. Um, the table that you see in the Last Supper painting is all wrong. That's just an elevated straight table. Uh, Jesus and the disciples would have been seated around what's called a triclinium, which is a, a three-sided kind of U-shaped table that was just a few inches from the ground. So what they would do, instead of sitting on a chair elevated, they would lean down on their left elbow. Their feet would be away from the table. Uh, their feet would have been washed. We, we read that, that Jesus did that. Um, so they, they would be reclining on their left elbow. They would eat with their right hand. And you need to know this, the setting here. Every disciple found a place at the table, but there were two spots specifically that were the coveted, kind of fought over spots. They were the seats that were on either side of the host. The host, of course, in this setting was Jesus. If you saw the Last Supper painting, you know that Jesus is painted right in the middle. He wouldn't have sat there. That's way too vulnerable of a spot for the host to be at a dinner like this. So what he would do is he would sit. So I want you to picture a U-shaped table. And there are the, there are the three seats over here that I want to talk through. The, the second one in is where the host would sit. Again, I want you to picture reclined, elbow on a pillow, feet away, and that's where Jesus would sit. But the two coveted positions were found on either side, on Jesus' left and Jesus' right. These are, the, these are the two positions that James and John, you might remember, were fighting over. Do you remember the scene when they were walking to Jerusalem and they were all in an argument and Jesus turned around and asked them, what are you guys bickering about? And they said, well, we're fighting over who's going to be the greatest and who you, J James and John wanted the seats on the left and the right. In fact, in one of the gospels, it says that James and John's mom went and asked Jesus for the favor. Come on. Isn't that, isn't that good? Hey, I'm so proud of my little boys. Could you just sit them right by you on your left and your right? Could you just do me a favor, right? They just sent mom to ask for the favor. So James and John were fighting over, over these two positions. Now, the position that is on Jesus's right would be, um, would be one of these honorable positions. And that person would tend to function as kind of sometimes the cup bearer for the host, 
sometimes tasting the food or the drink before the host. Oftentimes, he would also um, work as the, the bodyguard for the host. He was the first person that was the, the door, the opening of the, the room was here, so he was positioned between the host and the door in case somebody were to burst in on, on that scene. Oftentimes, this person would have a sword. I'm thinking, too, that Peter probably wanted that position, which is why later on when Jesus said, we're going to need a sword, Peter goes, I happen to have one right here, <laughs> right? Like, I'm pretty sure he wanted the bodyguard spot. Didn't get it. I think Peter was probably all the way on the other side at the lowest part of the table. His job should have been to wash feet. We'll come back to that. So here we have the, the bodyguard, and uh, we know that John was the one who got that spot. Remember, James and John argued over these two spots. One brother won. John got the spot. We know that from what we just read. Uh, John, I love this, refers to himself in his book as the one whom Jesus loved. And I love that. Did you know that when you talk about yourself, you can refer to yourself as the one who Jesus loved? John, John understood that. So we know that that's John because it says that at one point when they're trying to figure out, when the disciples are trying to figure out who's the backstabber, John leans his head back on Jesus's chest and asks him, Lord, who is it? The only person in the whole room seated at the table who could have leaned back on Jesus was the one seated right here on Jesus's right side. So we know that that was John. Now, the other coveted position was the one on the left of the host. And this position was typically held for the guest of honor. This was probably the, the most highly contested spot in the dinner that night because everybody wanted to be seated as the guest of honor. And we could take a guess at who this person was because Jesus was close enough to this person that he could feed him a piece of bread. Who could this person be? John chapter 13, verse 26. Look at this. Who's in the guest of honor spot? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Judas is seated in the guest of honor spot. This is huge. Listen to me. This is huge because we just talked about this. If you knew what Jesus knew, Judas wouldn't be in the room. And if he got in the room, he certainly wouldn't be seated right next to you so you could feed him. He would be as far across the other side of the room as possible. Are you with me on that? But Jesus, so why did Jesus seat Judas in the guest of honor position? John 13 verse 1, because he loved him to the end. Because in the darkest moments of our lives, when we feel the least worthy, God still loves us even to the end. Did you hear me on that? I'm addicted. God loves me. My marriage, God loves me. My finances are failing. God loves me, right? Whatever it is for you, whatever you might say about yourself, I'm in the darkest part of my life. Jesus loves you to the end. Listen, he seated Judas as the guest of honor. I've invited people to church for years now, and it's oftentimes it's very well received. Sometimes it's interesting what people will say. I've had people actually laugh and say, I don't think you want me at your church. Because if I walked into your church, I think God would probably strike it with lightning or something, you know? 
And, and the idea, what they're trying to communicate is, I am completely unworthy to be walking into a church. And I think probably a lot of us could relate to that feeling at some point in our lives. Maybe you braved that feeling to walk into church today. Maybe you pushed past some fears of just driving your car to a church today because you got burned by some Christian or some church in the past. Number one, I would say I'm sorry that the body of Christ might have treated you badly. Number two, I hope that you feel welcome at Awakened Church. I want you to know this is, we, we, we exist for people who are far from Christ to be awakened to new life in Christ. That's why we're here. But listen, when somebody says, I'm not worthy to go to church, that's like a sick person saying they're not healthy enough to go to the hospital. Like, uh, isn't the point to get, like, shouldn't sick people be going to the hospital, right? Listen to me, the church is the hospital. This is not a place for healthy people. This is a place for healthy people to serve the sick. That's, that's the point. Healthy people shouldn't just be sitting in chairs. Healthy people should be serving the sick people that we're constantly bringing in our doors. If this is a place where we just come because we've got it all together and we've got our suit and tie on and we're feeling good about ourselves and everything looks perfect in our lives, we've missed the point. This is a hospital for the hurting. Anybody with me on that? You listening? This is a hospital for the hurting. It's not about being worthy. Here's what I'm trying to get at. A lot of times we don't feel worthy. Here's the truth. You are never worthy of God's grace, which is why God is always worthy of our praise. I can't earn it, which, which is what makes it so good. I'll never be good enough. And that's why I love God so much, because even when I've acted like Judas... He says, you're welcome at the table. Jesus always saves a seat for Judas. Your lowest moments can't stop God's deepest love for you. Number two, write this one down. Number two, Jesus stops at nothing to demonstrate his love. Now, we, we read about this scene here of Jesus washing, washing the feet um, of the disciples. Verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, when we read in the Bible about foot washing, it's really hard for us to connect our American mindset to this Jewish tradition. Like, we just don't do this anymore. And some of you guys are like, thank God we don't, right? Americans, we're just kind of like, could you keep your feet to yourself, please, at all times? I don't know. if Have you guys ever been on an airplane and somebody took their socks and shoes off? This is wrong, people. There should be laws against this, right? Like, we should be scanning people at the gates. If you are one that takes off your socks and shoes on a plane, you should not be allowed on, right? If I catch one of you ever doing it, I will call the authorities, Okay. This is not okay. Americans, we just are like, feet, no thanks. Keep, it, keep those things at a distance. But in this culture, they were far dirtier, and yet they would wash their feet. Why is this so hard for us to understand? Well, because we put on socks and shoes and get in a car and drive on asphalt. So our feet don't get dirty like they would have back in this day. For them, they put on sandals and walked through the dust and the dirt and the mud. Their feet, by the time they got to the upper room, were black and dirty and grimy. 
Nobody wanted to wash feet. This wasn't an honorable thing. This is not something that they were fighting over. The disciples wanted these two seats, but they did not want to wash anybody's feet there. This is a very uh, humbling, dishonoring thing to do. And normally there would be a slave or a servant that that was their, that was their primary job. When somebody got there, they would remove their sandals and wash their feet. But Jesus does this. So think about this. Because of the degrading manner of that job, the person who washed the feet was, was generally considered to be like the lowest of the low. Rarely was it the host that did it. They normally would have a servant or a slave that would do it. So think about that for a moment. We have the creator of the universe who is stooped down on his knees, washing the feet of the people he created who within hours would abandon him for fear of their own lives. This is the humility of our Savior. You got you to understand what Jesus did just right here. Before he ever went to the cross, he proved what it was like to serve other people. And so eventually he makes it all the way around this U-shaped table. He gets to Peter, I believe, at the very end. Peter, being the last one at the end of the table, the wash basin was probably situated by him. It should have been him that washed everybody's feet. So no wonder he felt pretty guilty by the time Jesus got around him and questioned Jesus on it. So he should have been the one. And then Jesus gets back up and he, he puts the towel aside and he puts his robe back on and he says, do you see what I've done? I've washed your feet so you should wash others' feet. Now, verse 14, that can be problematic for us Americans because when you read Jesus saying you should wash other feet, you're like, how could I get out of that, right? I'm not, I don't know about the whole foot washing thing. Now, Americans, this is a, remember, this is a Jewish cultural thing. Jesus is not commanding us here to wash each other's feet. Thank Jesus for that, okay? But what he is commanding is a lifestyle of stooping down to help and serve other people. Just like our Savior did, who was the host, who could have easily said, Peter, get off your butt and wash everybody's feet. He got up and did the grimy, dirty work. So what that means for us is that we are called to a life of service. This is what Jesus is saying. The way, just how I've served you, you need to go out and serve other people. What does that look like for us? Well, it's different in every life, in every season, in every family, in every friendship. But you need to be prayerfully considering what that would look like for you. What, what, what does selfless service look like in your context? I can tell you this, it will start in your home. It will start in your home. Husbands, listen, we are called to love and serve our wives. Did you know that? You're like, I don't know, Ephesians chapter 5 says, I play the part of Jesus. in The, 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 the marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Sure, but look at what Jesus did. Jesus got down on his knees and served the people. Listen, husbands, you are not there in your marriage to demand things from your wife, but to serve your wife, to lead her and love her and sacrifice for her. We are, we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, your role is to serve your husband in your home. Whatever that, in that context, it looks like. It means to lovingly submit to his leadership. It means to pray for him and support him. 
You're not an underling. You are not any less important. You are his helper. And if you don't like that title, can I just remind you that God used that of himself in the Holy Spirit. I am the helper. That is an elevated title. You should feel honored that God uses the same title for you wives as he does for the Holy Spirit. This translates in all areas. When you see somebody outside of your home, maybe it's a homeless person. Maybe it's a a single mom in your neighborhood. Maybe it's one of your classmates. It certainly transfers here to Awakened Church, to whatever church you're a part of. When you are a part of a body of Christ, of, of the body of Christ, the local church, you have something to contribute more than just filling up a seat, ladies and gentlemen. Christians were not saved to sit in a seat. We were saved to serve. Jesus went out of his way to get down on his knees and serve the people around him. And listen, you have a gift that needs to be contributing to the growth and expansion and reach of the body of Christ. It's not enough to just sit. Listen, most Christians do what the rest of the disciples did around the table. They sit there and let somebody else serve them. We need to, in our context, be Jesus who goes, man, if nobody else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'll get up and I'll do whatever I need to do to get down on my knees and go around and do the hard, grimy work. Because if Jesus came to serve, I think we should live to serve. Amen? Now, obviously, this was shocking news for the disciples. Jesus just dropped a bomb on them that, that somebody in the room was going to um, stab him in the back, betray him. Here's, here's, let's look at a, a little bit more of the dialogue. Chapter thir- John 13, starting in verse uh, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him, motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel... He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Look at that. Not only did the bread enter into him, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one, watch this, look at this. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. They're missing the whole thing. They've been asking, who is it? They don't, they, they, they've missed the whole thing. Verse 29, some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. I want to focus in on, remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are like four camera angles of the same story, Right? So you're going to find some content in one of the books that you may not find in the other books. That's not a contradiction. That's a different vantage point. So Luke and John highlight the the buzz that was happening in the room. All of the disciples, there's this uproar. Who is it? They're asking themselves. That's one of the questions that was circling that night. Peter motioned to John, find out who it is. Who is it? Who could this be? But there's another question that Matthew and Mark focus in on. 
that I want us to, to ask ourselves today. They weren't asking, and in Matthew and Mark, they, they, they point out that there's another question. Here's the question, not who was it, but is it I? Write this down, number three. Number three, don't look around for Judas, look within. Chances are he's a lot closer than you would like to admit. You see, here's, here's what's happening. I'm kind of frightened, actually, by, the, by, by how good Judas played the part. Right? Like, I, I mean, if you were just tracking with me in these last few verses that we just read, I don't think Jesus could have made it much clearer who the guy was. Right? So, so let me set the scene. Jesus just got up, washed everybody's feet, sat back down. He says, one of you is going to betray me. There's this buzz around the room. Who is it? It says that Peter motioned to John. Where, where does that tell us that Peter sat? Well, the easiest way for him to get John's attention, who was on Jesus' right side, was if Peter is just directly across. He's at the lowest part. Of, he's at the, the, the last seat. Peter motions to John. Who had, find out from Jesus who it is. John leans back on Jesus' chest. Who is it? That's the buzz going around the room. So here's what Jesus says. He goes, I'll tell you who it is. He's the guy who I'm going to dip this bread and feed it to him. So you know what Jesus does? Takes off a piece of bread, dips it in, dips it in the wine, feeds it to Judas. He goes, Judas, go do what you have to do. And the other disciples are, are like, I wonder what he's going to go do. <laughs> like... What else does he need to do? Does he need to like put a betrayer sticker on him? Like I, I that may, maybe it's probably like the only thing that could have made it more clear besides I'm going to put the bread in the mouth of my betrayer. And then they're like, I don't, why did he just feed him? We're not sure who's the betrayer. Now we laugh at these jokers because we see Judas, we know. Like John chapter 13 started with Judas sat at the table and he was the one who would betray Jesus. We have the vantage point of being zoomed out and seeing the whole story. But listen, the disciples were there. They were friends with Judas. Judas was at their house. He watched their kids grow up. Judas was, was good friends with these guys. Judas was there when they gathered baskets after the multiplication of the, the fish and loaves. He was one of the guys. Judas was there when they prayed for demons to leave and the demons left. Judas was there when Jesus resurrected the dead. Judas was there in all of that. So listen, this is frightening to me that Jesus makes it so crystal clear that Judas is the betrayer, and even then the disciples don't get it. They go, well, he has the money, so maybe he's going to go grocery shopping, or maybe he's going to just go feed the poor. He did such a great job of acting that the people who were closest to him didn't really know him. You know what the word hypocrite means? It means an actor. A hypocrite back in the Bible days was somebody who, on a stage often, would wear a mask. 
It wasn't originally intended to be a, a negative word. We know the word hypocrite has negative connotations today. But back in the day when you were an actor and you put on a mask, they called you a hypocrite. This is what Judas was, right? The people closest to him didn't even know him. Why is that frightening? Because I lived this life too. Maybe some of you have lived this life or are living this life where the people closest to you don't even know who you really are. So I wonder today if maybe instead of, because listen, when we read a story about Judas, the easy question for us to ask is to look around the room and say, who is it? I think the better question for us to ask is, is it I? Could, could I maybe do this? Because here's the sad reality. We got two venues right now filled with Judases. We're all Judas. On some level, we've stabbed Jesus in the back before. We're not proud of it, but we'll probably do it again. It's not what we brag about. That's not what we want to do. But there will be times in our lives where we walk away from what we know we are supposed to do. It's betraying our Savior. So chapter 13, verse 18, says something really interesting about Judas. Jesus says this, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Who could have ever guessed that Judas's treachery would prove biblical prophecy? Here's what I want you to see today. You have a choice in front of you between obedience and disobedience. Every one of us has a choice. Obedience proves God's wisdom. You say, I recognize that God's way is the right way. I'm going to obey. You prove God's wisdom. Disobedience, we just read it. God, even the book of Psalms says, even the wrath of man will praise God. I'm thinking if betrayal can prove prophecy, the bigger picture for us here is that our disobedience proves God's sovereignty. That he was right about that as well. So here's the way I see it. In your obedience or your disobedience, you prove God right either way. So don't you think it would be better to choose obedience, which will be eternally better for you? So let me speak to the Judases in the room. And I'm speaking to myself right now too. If you're joining us online, if you're South Venue, North Venue, wherever you are, listen, we are all prone to this lifestyle. I lived way too long like Judas put together on the outside, falling apart on the inside. Some of you are that right now. You got it all together on the outside, but even some of the closest people in your life don't know who you really are. This is problematic and this has to end. 
Jesus came to save you from that life of slavery to your sin and addiction. You don't have to keep going in hidden sin. Proverbs 28, 13 talks about if we confess our sin, only if we confess our sin can we receive mercy and move forward. Can we ever make progress and forward motion in life? We have to confess sin. We have to be open with it. So let me tell you three things that every Judas needs to know. Number one, God knows. God knows. You have everybody else fooled. You didn't fool God. God knows. Number two, God loves you anyway. He will seat you gladly as the guest of honor at his table. The hand of the one who will betray me is at the table with me. It's your hand. He's invited you in. Number three, you have a choice. God knows. God loves you anyway. You have a choice. Judas was not forced into that decision that night. He made a decision. He made the choice. So listen, our job is not to protect Jesus from Judas. He doesn't need us protecting him. Our job is to make sure I am not Judas. Because the easy thing is to look around and start picking out all of the problems in everybody else's life. Well, I see this in you, and I see this problem, and I see this failure. Look within. It's not about who is it, it's, is it I? Could I do this? Here's the great news. Jesus can today remove the sting of sin in your life when you choose life in Jesus Christ. It's a choice. You have a choice. You're not forced to go down a path of disobedience. You can choose life in Jesus Christ today.